session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra on Instagram Live for the show, so I won't be taking any calls. But you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes uh, and Spotify. Um, before I get to the books of the week, related to the books of the week, today I had my second book club um, room on Clubhouse, and it was great. We had a good amount of people in there, and lots of people had read the book that I'll talk about tonight. Some people hadn't, but shared their opinions as well. So it's been a nice experience to get to have something more like a conversation. I know I say discussion when I describe the, the books, but really to have a conversation with multiple people. So I hope you'll join those uh, book club rooms. They're going to be every Monday at 1 p.m. Los Angeles time on Clubhouse. So if you follow me or join my club Psych Talk with Dr. Farid, you can see those updates on the books uh, the book clubs. And so it's a cool experience. I appreciate the people who have joined and also those of you that recommended it to me to have something like that from a few years ago, finally able to make that happen in some way. So I hope you'll join me Mondays at 1 p.m. Los Angeles time on Clubhouse for the book club discussion so you can join the conversation there. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about next week and also you can join the Clubhouse room at 1 p.m. is Social Chemistry by Marissa King, Social Chemistry, Decoding the Patterns of Human Connection. So, um, you know, when you talk about judging a book by its cover, the cover of this book actually reminds me of um, the uh, cover for my podcast, which my aunt uh, Azita made for me several years ago when I was trying to make it on to official podcast on Apple, you had to have your own art. And she developed this thing with the circles that are kind of connecting, which I thought was cool. And so uh, this, you know, when you talk about judge a book by its cover, I was definitely drawn to the cover because of that. But also, it does seem like an interesting book looking at uh, human social psychology about connecting and networks and things of that nature. So social chemistry, by Marissa King. Look forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. Hope you'll join in the discussion. The book of the week for last week that I'll talk about tonight is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. And so uh, actually when I posted this book, I get lots of comments, uh, you know, for most of the books, but this one got a lot of really positive comments at this book really made a big impact on my life or really helped me change some things. And so it does seem like this book has had a big impact on many people on the cover. It says over 1 million copies sold. So uh, many people have read this book and I thought it was a good breakdown of habits, what they are, and also how we can help ourselves create good habits. And so even that title, Atomic Habits, and it says on the cover, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results. And so uh, atomic meaning at the smallest 
particle or smallest way that something can be broken down, as it says here on one of the first pages, an extremely small amount of a thing, the single irreducible unit of a larger system, and also the source of immense energy or power, a habit, a routine or practice performed regularly, an automatic response to a specific situation. That part is critical, automatic. Um, and so atomic habits in that way, they're small habits. They're, they have small uh, they take a little bit out of us each time, but they can have huge results. And so that's what the book essentially is about. Now, one thing when we look at habits that comes up is people think it comes down to willpower. Do you have the willpower to do something or not? And some people think I either have it or I don't. First of all, willpower is not something you either have or you don't have. It's kind of like a resource that you use and it can get depleted and then you could bring it back up. It's not going to be a constant type of a thing. But more important than that in the book, what he shares is that it's not so much about willpower. It's actually more about the systems that you have or the way you create your environment and your situation. That is what will help you achieve great things or greater things or to build these habits. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. It's not just if I think hard enough, try hard enough, I can do it. That's true. And so that gets to this issue of can you do something versus, you know, is it possible versus making it easier? So sometimes people will say, well, yeah, you know, but I could have done it anyway. I could have studied for this test anyway, which is true. Let's say that you could have, but let's look at how you can set yourself up for success and also not blame yourself for what's going on as much and try to realize what can you do differently to achieve great things. And so I thought that was an important part because we can take it personally when we don't achieve our goals that, oh, you know, there's something wrong with me. I'm weak. Um, you know, I should be able to do this and a bunch of different ways that we might talk down to ourselves. But he emphasized that it's about the system more than uh, just focusing on specific goals. And so, you know, when we look at atomic habits trying to make progress, one of the issues that we can oftentimes hit is when we start doing a new habit, whatever that might be, you usually don't get immediate results. And this can be really challenging. He labels something the plateau of latent potential, which is basically that point where you get, uh, you keep doing something, but you don't get any um, progress or tangible results. And a lot of people give up here, you know, so you've been exercising for a week and nothing happens. You've been studying a language for two weeks and you feel like you don't know anything yet or whatever the habit might be that you're trying to do. Very often we start doing the habit and we don't see any change. So we give up. But as he points out, we have to be aware that usually habits they take time. Anything that's meaningful takes time to show results. So uh, he, he says something along the lines of, you know, you do the work, but the results lag behind, which is kind of true. So if you're working hard at something, you don't immediately get the results. You do tend to get the results a little bit later. And that can be tough because you have to be willing to push through or tell yourself to continue even when the results aren't coming. But he shared something, actually says uh, that the San Antonio Spurs, which is one of the more, uh, as he says, successful teams in NBA history, which I would agree with. And they have a, a quote um, in their locker room by Jacob Reese, uh, Reese, R-I-I-S, uh, which goes like this, when nothing seems to help, 
I go and look at a stone cutter hammering away at his rock, perhaps a hundred times without as much as a crack showing in it. Yet at the hundred and first blow, it will split in two, and I know it was not that last blow that did it, but all that had gone on before. And so I think that's an interesting analogy to keep in mind. So, you know, you imagine the rock cutter and hammering over and over again, or I've seen this also when people are cutting wood sometimes that you don't see, um, you know, the, the nothing happens so much yet, but especially with rock, you might see that it's, it's seems like it's nothing is happening, but then all of a sudden it cracks, but it didn't crack from that 101st blow or the hit that the stone cutter did. It was all the ones that happened before that allowed for that to happen. So the 101st one made that kind of impact. So that's also this theme of the book of Atomic Habits is making small steps towards something very big. And I think that's very meaningful. And also it means that we have to recognize that each small step can seem in and of itself fairly meaningless or not very significant, which actually is true, but it's the accumulation of these things that make an impact. And that's where we have this sort of paradox where one step doesn't matter, but so many matter. But the only way you could do so many is if you make each step important, meaning that the consistency is key. So uh, using exercise, one workout won't make or break your body or your fitness. That's not possible. And if you're looking for that, you probably will stop quickly. But it's the accumulation of many workouts that then leads to something. And so you have to keep sticking to it. So I thought that was important looking at the mindset we'd want to have when it comes to our habits that we have to be able to recognize small steps go a long way that we have to stick to something for a long time to see the results. But if we trust in our system, so if you believe exercise is helpful, so if I consistently exercise, that will have a positive effect. I might not see the effect immediately. Again, the results might lag behind the work that you're putting in. But I have to believe that if I do 100 workouts in the next few months, that will have an impact. It can't have no impact. So I think that's an important thing uh, to keep in mind. Now, going back to the sense that uh, habits are not so much about willpower, that it's more about the system, he does get into what a habit is made up of. And as, as was in the definition of habit, a big component of it is that it is at least it can be completely or partially automatic, meaning that you don't think much of it. And so much of what we do, and you might not realize it, our habits and you know every day so much of what we're doing to get through our day-to-day experience are habits that we don't really think much about and that's the good and the bad news it's uh good news because by things being automatic it frees up our thinking to focus on other things if you don't have to think about a lot of the things you're doing, you can do those things automatically and then focus on uh, other things. But the bad news is also because we don't think about it, we sometimes start doing it or do these things without realizing what we're doing. And so he didn't have a quote by William James, which I really like about habits, and I should have looked it up before I, I, I mentioned it. But essentially, it's along the lines that we have habits as humans. We do certain things. What we, The choice we have is are our habits going to work for us or are they going to work against us? You're automatically going to do a lot of things. You're going to be drawn to doing a lot of things. But the important part is, 
Are the habits that you're doing every day and regularly serving you or are they hurting you? And I think that's so key and something to realize. In the discussion today on Clubhouse, someone brought up an interesting point. And I do think actually the ideas in the book, sometimes when you read a book like this, it can be a little overly simplified. I still think it's practical and has value. But sometimes it's overly simplified the way that things can be explained, that you just do this and things are going to change. But I think there, again, is, is a lot of value in what he shares in the book. But someone said, you know, the things he talks about in the book, depending on your life, you might not have time to implement them. And yes, that we all have individual constraints and opportunities and possibilities that we have to, to be aware of. And so not everyone can do the same thing. But what I, what I told her, and I think it was interesting she brought up the point because it made me uh, bring up this point. So I wanted to share it today as well, that you have habits no matter what. So it's not that you don't have time for them. You're doing them every day. And essentially, because we don't have a lot of time, we have habits because we need to do some things automatically. So what we want to try to do is create the habits that are serving us. So those things you do automatically are beneficial to you rather than hurting you. And I think that's really, really important to keep in mind. You're doing things naturally. So it might be something like, okay, whenever I finish work, I watch two hours of Netflix not saying you shouldn't watch Netflix at all, but you might realize there's something else you can do that might benefit you more than this habit that you now have. Or uh, after I do a little bit of work, I always check my phone and go on there for 20 minutes. You, you don't have to do that. And you might not realize it's even a habit because it happens so naturally and unconsciously, but that is a habit and you can change it. And initially to change a habit does take work and does take effort. But the good news is once we make it internalized into a habit, you don't have to think about it anymore. And that's what we want to try to get to. I'm sure you've all been, and I can relate to this too, in different aspects or times in your life, you've had some positive habits and negative habits that were very hard to break. And the great thing is when you have a positive habit, you could want to do the good thing. You can almost be craving doing the good thing. I've been at times in my life where I've been exercising a lot and you feel this urge to exercise if you don't do it for a little bit of time. Um, this is one of the amazing things about being, uh, it's really of any animal, but if we look at human beings, we can get used to so many things good and bad, such a spectrum. If we look at someone who's addicted, let's say to alcohol, alcohol, I mean, not to get into should you drink or not at all, but it has a, it's essentially toxic, it's hurting you. But if you drink it often enough and build up that habit and that physiological type of habit and dependence, you feel sick if you don't drink the poison. That's how we can become. We can get so adapted and habituated to something harmful, that if you actually don't put the poison into your body, you're going to feel bad, at least for a little bit of time, which is quite remarkable to the point that when I was doing a one-year internship at a psychiatric hospital, when people were detoxing from alcohol on their chart, it had to say really big Ito detox, because these individuals had to be monitored very closely, because you can die from withdrawing from alcohol. So you can die from not putting the poison in your body anymore. That's how much we can be habituated to something that could be good or bad. And we want to be aware of what are the habits I'm taking on, implementing into my life. We all have them. Are my habits hurting me or are they helping me and benefiting me long term? And so to me, that's a really fascinating point that we can 
be addicted to poison, just like in relationships. People could be in a toxic relationship and they feel like they're going to die if they lose that person who is hurting them time and time again. It becomes kind of like an addiction, but also related to habit that it's this automatic type of behavior or responding that we get so used to that taking it away becomes very painful. And so we have to be aware of that, that we take small steps in good or bad directions, but the course we set, if you take a thousand steps in one direction, you could end up somewhere really good. You take a thousand steps in a bad direction, your life might be ruined. And it's up to us to be aware of and be mindful of the steps that we make. And before I go to commercial break, I shared this quote uh, on my Instagram because I thought it was so interesting when I came across it in the book, which was that uh, the costs of good habits you pay in the present. The costs of bad habits you pay in the future, meaning that when you're doing a good habit, usually it's a little bit hard to do it in the moment, but in the future you're going to get benefits. But the problem with bad habits is in the moment it feels comfortable and easy, but you're going to pay the, pay the price down the line. If you are not exercising or if you're eating unhealthily or if you're not uh, studying or doing the things you need to do, you're going to pay the price down the line. So we should try to shift, and I'll talk about that after the break, to make it so we pay some price now but that we get to reap the benefits later on. Let's go to a a commercial break. The book I'm discussing is Atomic Habits by James Clear. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. Uh, So he does get into his essentially four steps kind of a model uh, or four laws of habits. He also talks about how to use those steps. Um, And he does say that there's other people who've written about habits like Charles Duhigg. Actually, it's interesting (laughs) in a funny way. I didn't realize it at the time. So he wrote a book called The Power of Habit. It might have been the first or second, it might have been the first book, I'm not sure, that I ever did as a book of the week. And it's so funny, I didn't realize there's kind of a, um, not irony, but it's coincidental that that book, which is on habits, was the first book I read as part of this habit of reading a book every week for going into the fifth year now. So it is kind of a funny coincidence. But he does mention that others have come up with similar types of ways of breaking down habits. But the four steps he puts in in habits are cue, craving, response, reward. So cue is the thing that makes you want to do something. It could be a time of day, or he gives, I can give you an example. So um, Q, your phone buzzes with a new text message. Then there's craving. You want to learn the contents of the message. Response, you grab your phone and read the text. Reward, you satisfy your craving to read the message. Grabbing your phone becomes associated with your phone buzzing. So those are the four steps that he talks about when it comes to habit. And then so he uses those steps to help you create good habits for yourself. So um, how can we create a good healthy habit and also how to get rid of some bad habits? So it's interesting the way he breaks that down in different ways. So the first part when it comes to the cue, you want to make it obvious. So, you know, one of the things people do, and some people talked about this during the the, the clubhouse room we had today, if you want to make it more likely that you do something, the more the easier it is to do it, the more likely you are to do it. So if you have exercise equipment in your house, 
it's more likely you'll do it than if you have to drive 30 minutes to your gym, let's say. And so, again, this goes back to could you still work out if you have to drive 30 minutes to the gym? Of course you can, and people do it, and they do even you know, more difficult journeys to get to their working out. Uh, but it does make it easier. So you can set yourself up to be more likely to succeed. And so he goes into the different, um, the, these different steps, cue, craving, response, uh, reward, and, and breaks down what you can do, you know, different things to help you. He talks about accountability in one part of the book, which I thought was interesting. Um, talking about the books of the week. For me, a big part of the accountability is I have to talk to you about the book. So I know I have to read it, obviously, and understand it good enough to be able to share my thoughts about it. I also, now with the clubhouse, I have to make sure I have it done by Sunday night. So by Monday, I'm, I'm 1 p.m., I'm ready to go. So I can't leave any of it for Monday. Sometimes I would leave a bit of the book for Monday day, but now that's no longer possible, which is actually okay. Um, so the accountability can be very helpful, whether it's someone you know who you tell about what you want to do. Sometimes you create a cost to yourself that if I don't do something, uh, I have to pay some kind of a price. Um, and, you know, related to this idea of, as I was saying before, you pay the price of good habits now and you get the benefits later. You get the benefit of a bad habit right now, but you pay the cost later on. It brings up this issue of being an organism, just a living being, which humans, we are basic, we are animals. And like any animals or living being, we are trying to survive, which means we have to do some things. We have to make sure we don't get uh, killed or injured in some way. But also when it comes to using our own energy, we want to conserve energy as a living being. You have to make sure you don't waste energy or use too much. And as much as we might think, well, we're not animals like in the past, we still have the brains of an animal. And so this is going to be how we operate. When we can save energy, our initial reaction will be to save energy. And if we also relate this to uh, Mark Solms's book, uh, Hidden Spring, and was very happy to have him on the show last week on Wednesday, the body is trying to maintain a certain homeostasis. And when we go away from that homeostasis, we try to get back to it, but we don't want to get away from it. So in general, we don't want to expend energy in our normal state. So, and this is why when we look at anything we're going through, usually is the things that are better for us long term, they take a little bit of work and effort. And the things that we like to do, they're easier for us in the moment, right? So just as a baseline, we know it's easier to sit there and just watch TV than to get up and go exercise. It takes some effort. And so we can understand that the body and the brain's initial point is going to be to, to not use energy. So that's why it takes some effort to overcome and override that tendency to want to conserve energy. We have to, in a way, think about it and put some effort to do that. Uh, and this is the disadvantage we're always going to find ourselves with these types of goals, that what's easier for us in the moment usually is going to be harder for us down the line. But if we want to do what's better for us in the long term, we have to be able to override that comfort in the moment. That's the challenging piece, is that my body, my brain, in a way, is going to push me a certain way. And this is why we consistently have to override how we're going to do what we're going to do to not do the easier thing. 
So this is why there's even something called a Ulysses contract, which is essentially when we're making a decision for our future self using more, we can say, the logic or the rational part of our mind that thinks this is what's good for me in the long term, because we know that when we get to that point in the present moment, we're going to be more drawn towards the easier thing, which is to not do work. So you want to go work out tomorrow at 6 a.m., but you know that when you set that alarm, let's say at 5.45 in the morning, you're probably going to want to go back to sleep. You know, right now you might be all motivated, but you, if you're being real with yourself, you'll probably, if you're someone that doesn't wake up that early normally, which would include me, when you hear the alarm go off, your initial reaction, your body, your brain is going to say, hey, let's go back to sleep. We need to rest. And that's when we become very good lawyers for <laughs> defending ourselves to not do something. We say, oh, you know what? Sleep might even be more important than exercise or, uh, you know, I should start tomorrow. I didn't sleep that early last night. Anyway, it won't be a good start. So we'll come with ways, and we all have done this before, to justify taking the easy way out. Uh, and so we hopefully won't do that. But if we do a Ulysses contract, we might have someone help us. Hey, look, when it's 545, even people will do stuff like throw water on my bed so I have to get out of bed. Or uh, I want you to shake me even if I try to go back to sleep. Don't let me go to sleep. And this is actually what brings up a very fascinating uh, discussion or at least thinking that we can have on who am I and what is me as Farid, who am I? How many is there more than one me? Is there one me? Because right now I'm saying, okay, tomorrow morning I want to do this. But then the tomorrow morning me, if you want to call that a different me, might not want to do that in that moment. But again, then later on, I might think it would be better for me to do it. So we see that we have these different parts of ourselves. I think, you know, there are these different motivations that make us have these types of interesting dynamics that come up. Because if I'm saying I want to exercise tomorrow morning, but then tomorrow morning I don't want to exercise, who is the real me? Is it just the real me in the moment? Are they both me? And I think we do have these different aspects of the self. And even this goes back to the discussion or the, the concepts and ideas that I really thought were expressed clearly in uh, Dr. Mark Solms's book, The Hidden Spring, that we have different needs, right? So the body and the, you know, is going to have different needs and because of that different wants, different feelings. And so you have a desire for rest and to not expend too much energy, but you also have these goals of exercising. We have a goal to think for ourselves, but we also have goals and desires related to being accepted by other people. And so I think being a human being we have to balance constantly these multiple wants and needs and desires. And that's what can make life challenging. That's when actually I think we get to something like a dilemma is when we have multiple needs at the same time that might be conflicting in some way. So what could be one dilemma, for example, should I um, talk to my friend about this issue on one hand, I think it's good to talk about things when you're having a disagreement. But on the other hand, there's this need for comfort and peace. And I'm worried that we're going to have an argument or disagreement. And it feels more comfortable not to do that. So I have these two needs or feelings at the same time. When we talk about having mixed feelings or conflicting feelings. And that can make it very challenging to 
decide what to do. If everything was alignment, everything was all systems go, it would be very easy for me to make that decision. And a lot of life, we might feel that way. But then we do have these dilemmas that we can experience of what um, should I do? How do I balance these different needs, these different feelings, these different wants to make one action? Um, but, you know, coming back to the book, that was obviously a tangent um, off the book. But, you know, he talks about different ways to make it easier for yourself to do something. So, for example, something called habit stacking. Someone also mentioned this during the commercial break, um, which is where you basically do after current habit, I will do new habits. So, for example, if you um, brush your teeth or you, let's say you, uh, yeah, let's say brush your teeth every night but you want to add some new habit. After I brush my teeth, I will study German for five minutes on my phone. And so you make it so they start to follow each other. And then the cue of brushing your teeth or finishing brushing your teeth will then create a chain that will make it easier for you to, for example, practice German for five minutes every night. So we can use some of the techniques. And as I said, he, he has uh, the book is you know chocked full of different techniques you can use to help yourself be more likely to to achieve your goals. Um, and he has lots of writing and that's, you know, really his focus is habits, how to make yourself more focused on creating uh, habits and, and building on them. Um, I'm trying to think what else I can share with you on the book. I really did, uh, you know, there's so much in it about different things that we, we can do to make ourselves more likely uh, to do something. Um, but, you know, the, the, the whole thing of cue, craving, response, sorry, yeah, response, reward, that is really one of the main themes he has in the book. Uh, you know, another thing he brings up is how um, when you want to start a habit, sometimes what you need to do is make it really easy to get it done. So he even has a two minute rule, which is basically break down your new habit into something you can do in two minutes. So even if it's exercising, rather than saying, okay, starting tomorrow, I'm going to do a two, two hour workout every day. That can be overwhelming when you're starting something new. So he says, just do something for two minutes. And he even shares the story of someone who um, only was going to work out for five minutes. And so he would go to the gym and he was only allowed to work five minutes. And then he left and, and that was it. But then after a while, he started doing it more and more. And actually, I don't know, I think he talked about either how much weight he lost or he got in shape, but he was able to, to really get in shape. He built that habit um, over time. The last thing I'll say is, um, related to identity, which was another big concept I actually thought was interesting in the book, that when you're looking at setting your habits, rather than just looking at how, um, you know, build, writing them down or thinking about something, um, think about what kind of person would do that thing. So rather than thinking, he said, for example, I'm going to run a marathon, think I'm a runner. Rather than saying I'm going to read a book, think I am a reader. Rather than I'm going to start working out, think I am an athlete or I'm an athletic person. And then you start to think, well, what what would I do based on this identity? So if I'm an athletic or a healthy person, what decisions would I make as this healthy person that I am? If I am a reader, what type of things would I do when it comes to reading books? How often do I read it? How much would I read that? And this can be a very uh, important concept to make it more likely that we create good habits because we get in the mindset of, you know what, I am this. And a lot of us have some negative identities. Oh, I'm, I'm a lazy person or I don't do anything or I never work hard or I'm unhealthy or I'm out of shape or I'm all these kinds of identities that we might have that actually get in the way of us 
uh, achieving our goals. So I thought that was another important and interesting concept that he introduced, that identity can be a very important thing. He, the, the chapter is titled, How Your Habits Shape Your Identity and Vice Versa. So when you do certain things repeatedly, that's who you feel like you are. Uh, but also, if you tell yourself who you are, you're more likely to do certain things. So I thought that was also interesting. So, you know, the book, uh, I think it's a it's an interesting one. I had heard about it for a long time, and I hadn't read it um, till now. And I think there were some things that I'm going to continue to think about, even for myself and my own life, that he broke down in, in certain ways that makes it easier, at least gives you some insights into the ways that you can create good habits and also try to get rid of your bad habits. So that was Atomic Habits by James Clear. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I was discussing the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. And so I wanted to end the show talking about this theme, as it says, tiny changes, remarkable results, that when we're looking at the world, we can also think of this not just as habits, but the systems that we create in the world and what impact this has on the world. So when we are dealing with major issues on the planet, things like poverty, racism, which, you know, it's always been there, sadly, but it's even more on people's minds. These are really big issues that won't be changed overnight. And something I actually didn't talk about, I think today I talked about it in uh, or tonight on the show, but talked about it in the clubhouse room. Um, something I don't oftentimes like, there's a big drive towards things like um, life hacks. So people are looking for shortcuts. Um, and I know there's definitely things we should look at. How can you do something more efficiently? What are better ways of doing things? So I'm not saying we shouldn't try to educate ourselves to learn how to do things better. But I think, unfortunately, what we're seeing is people are more and more looking for easy ways to do certain things. So, um, okay, how do I, you know, if you want to get closer to your partner, maybe here are four questions you can ask your partner and they're going to fall in love with you. Or if you're trying to get in shape, here's a really quick workout or diet that will make you have huge results. Or you want to make money, oh, here's an easy way to make so much money. And people click on it because we're looking for that, which relates to what I was saying before that we don't want to expend energy. So the desire is understandable um, to try to uh, find an easier way. I can get that. But we have to be realistic when we're trying to do something, obviously do anything, of what does it take to accomplish something. We need to be realistic. So when you look at yourself and your own life, hopefully you will bring about that mindset that almost any type of important change is going to take time. There's no life hack to most things. It's just consistent hard work in the right direction gets you to those right results. You want to have a good relationship? You need to consistently be working on the relationship. There's no hack that if you, you know, do this, it's going to be okay. I mean, there could be a hack as in every week, spend a few hours talking about your relationship, be very open with each other, uh, possibly go to premarital counseling, go to therapy if you need it, read books together. I mean, I don't consider those hacks. That's the hard work. But if we're looking for some easy way to solve anything significant, it's not going to be there. 
And so when I was reading this book, it's, of course, looking at individual habits, how to build uh, good habits, healthy habits for yourself, which I think is very important. But I also think it made me look at the bigger world and how we're trying to make things better. And some of those same themes apply, like the um, plateau of latent potential, I think it was called something like that, where, you know, we're trying to make progress and you might do a lot of work or effort to make things better, but you might feel like things aren't changing very much. So it makes you want to give up. And I think that's a very important thing for us all to be aware of. When we're trying to make the world a better place and anything significant, childhood poverty or illnesses, racism, let's say in America, around the world, you alone are not going to do it. And most of these things maybe in your lifetime won't be solved or won't be resolved. But we want to make the habit or the system of the world a healthier way so that it continues to go towards something healthier. So I sometimes will see people will, you know, some athlete will say something or do something about racism and people say as a mean comment something like, um, you know, oh, and racism was solved after that, what this person did. And to me, it's a very silly and stupid comment to make because no significant thing got solved by one thing. And that person that wrote that comment never solved anything significant by one thing they did. But it doesn't mean things that we're doing are meaningless. And so I think we should look at our own lives and everything that we're doing and try to recognize, am I doing something positive? Am I doing something helpful? Not am I solving it? Uh, and even actually in the book, he talks about not getting so preoccupied with goals, focusing more on the system. Uh, and he does talk a lot about goals too. So it's not to say you shouldn't make goals and try to achieve them, but being aware that sometimes there's limitations to that. So if you make your goal, for example, eliminating racism, now as an aspirational goal, I think that's of course a good one. But if you feel like you're failing, if you don't get there, then you might give up because we unfortunately might not get there for some time. So I think what's even more important is to have that aspirational goal, but to be focused on the system. And then also even in a smaller scale, thinking about what you're doing every day. Am I contributing towards that goal or in that direction that I think is right, those values that I think are right? Uh, or am I not doing so? Am I doing either nothing or doing something that hurts whatever it is that I think is important? And we need to not be discouraged by the fact that things tend to go slow in social progress, that we might want to help so bad but to avoid burning out, we need to be aware of the slowness of the process. This doesn't mean we shouldn't demand for change at times, that we shouldn't be passionate and intense about it. So I'm not at all encouraging a mindset that's you know low key or low energy or not trying to do something big. But we do have to be aware that doing big things usually happens in small steps, sometimes a bigger step forward and lots of little steps, similar to the stone cutter, where you might be pounding away a hundred times and it's the hundred and first time that actually leads to something happening. But we have to be aware that most of the small steps you do, you won't see something tangibly happen. You won't see something that is a concrete type of a positive result. So it's something to be be aware of. 
that if we want to do something big, it's going to usually be in small steps. And I thought that was something that as I was reading the book, it was interesting to me to think of it in a larger scale as well. I usually try to think of what the book might mean in different aspects of life. And so for me, this was an important one to, to look at whatever it is that you want to do, be aware that you're probably not going to solve it alone. And it's up to us to not be discouraged by this. The way I sometimes think of it because of the books, and I'm looking at two books right in front of me right now, is that, you know, there's a book that is titled The End of Racism, let's say, uh, you know, and I mean this in a historical sense. There's a book that is that, and we're currently somewhere on some page. You're probably not going to finish the book, even yourself or even in your lifetime. But we shouldn't be discouraged by this. And this relates to something called the collapse of compassion. So when we see someone or some group suffering, it makes us feel bad. This is part of empathy, but also leads to compassion. So I see someone suffering, and because of our ability for empathy, our ability to um, feel someone else's pain, at least so to speak to some degree, it makes me feel bad. Now, how do I deal with that pain? Well, I can make them okay, right? I can, whatever it is they're hurting, if I can help, then if their pain is resolved, my internal pain gets resolved. So I know this can bring up some of the notions people have that, oh, see, well, then it's still selfish at the end because you're doing it to make yourself feel good. And then, you know, with that type of argument, people will also say everything we do is selfish because in some way either... It benefits us directly in some instrumental way, or it makes us feel good about ourselves, or we do it so other people like us. And I think there is a perspective that can make that true, but what we have to be careful is that if you take that argument to an extreme, then you would say that someone who tries to kill someone and someone who tries to save that person's life are morally equivalent. So someone who stabs someone and then also the doctor that then in the hospital tries to save that person's life, well, they're both being selfish. And I think obviously uh, it would be a very weak morality if it looks at things that way. So I do think, yes, we can see some reason why we do anything we do that has a benefit to us, but it doesn't mean those benefits uh, are equal or should be seen in the same way. I think that's very important to keep in mind. So when we see someone suffering, we want to help because that will make me feel better once they're resolved and their their issue is resolved. The problem is when we're looking at something big, like let's say childhood poverty, homelessness, even in Los Angeles, where we have one of the, I think that's the most in America. These situations don't get solved easily. You won't be able to fix them yourself, no matter what you do. Maybe you start a political movement that eventually does something, but that would take time too. But that's the part that discourages us. When I realize I don't feel good because I see people suffering, but then I realize like, oh, wait, there's no way for me to make this problem go away, which means if I keep seeing it as a problem or if I keep looking at it, I'm going to feel bad. So unfortunately, this leads to what can be called a collapse of compassion. I'm, it's too painful to care or it's it does pain me to care because I know I won't make the situation go away. So if I keep looking at it, I won't feel good. Or another thing we often do is we try to uh, justify it in some way. That's what we blame the victim or we say, you know what, they must have done something to get to this place. So maybe it's okay. I think actually probably things are just right. And that could allow me to try to feel better. 
But what I encourage myself to do, and I'm bringing it up because I think we all need to keep this in mind, is to be able to sit with the discomfort or the pain that comes about looking at a situation that's unfair. And of course, even as I say that, I recognize you might feel pain looking at the situation. Imagine what the people experiencing it are going through. So we don't want to compare you know, our pain, let's say, if we're seeing someone suffering. But we have to be able to tolerate that pain in order to help. So if you see a child and they're in a lot of pain, for example, let's say there's nothing you can do about their pain, but you can hold that child to at least comfort them while they're in pain. You don't have the medicine, whatever they're hurting, it's on the inside. You can't do anything, let's just say. But let's say you hold them, you sing to them, you rock them, whatever you can do to try to soothe them. You're not going to take away their pain. But would you think what you're doing is worthless? Absolutely not. What you're doing is something very meaningful. Won't eliminate the pain, won't eliminate the problem, but you would be helping. But you would have to be willing to tolerate this feeling of, let's say, the child keeps on crying. The child makes you know grimaces and pains and seems upset. You would have to be able to tolerate that. So similarly, in a more global or bigger issues, and we're dealing with not just one person where we can't fix the problem, we have to be willing to sit with some of that pain, that this is not okay that it's not fair or just, and that we have to be willing to accept that even though it's painful, I don't want to look away because the pain is still real. And be ready that a lot of you know things in your brain, your mind, however you want to conceptualize it, will try to get you to look away. But do you want to be part of the solution or do you want to ignore the problem and in that way be part of the problem? So coming back to that idea of the book, you're not going to finish the book. You're not going to be the author to write the last word. But maybe you can write some words in that book to get it closer to the end. And we can hopefully recognize that that's all we usually can do. We're not going to fix some problem. We're not going to solve it. But let's create the habits or let's create the systems that get us towards something good. Don't be discouraged that the fact is you probably won't fix the problem. That probably is always the case. And if the issue is big enough, usually it is something that makes us want to give up, makes us think it's not worth trying. Why should I do it? We're not going to fix it. Well, you're not going to fix it as incomplete, but you make it better. Going back to that analogy, imagine your child, any child, we tell you there's a medication that will stop that pain I was talking about that won't harm the child, but will bring their pain from 100% to 25%. You would instantly want to give that child that medication. It's not going to eliminate their pain, but it will make it less bad. It will make it at least easier. A lot of what we can do in life is we can't fix problems, but we can try to do what we can to make it at least better. And we want to make sure we don't get discouraged by what happens inside of us that makes us think, if I can't fix the problem, maybe I should look away. Maybe I should pretend like it's not a problem, or maybe I should pretend like this is the way it's supposed to be, or tell myself life should be unfair or is unfair, and this is just how it's going to be. So I hope every one of us will take those steps to help people make habits that makes the world better, that makes people suffer less. You're not going to get rid of human suffering. Uh, Maybe we never will completely get rid of it, but we can get closer and closer to eliminating the unnecessary suffering. And each one of us individually can look at our lives and think, how much did I do to help the world, to help people who are in pain and in suffering? And I think 
if you live a life where you're devoted to that, you won't be regretful at the end of your life. Never does someone regret helping other people, making a positive impact. But like the habits we were talking about today, just wanting it is not enough. We have to create the systems in our personal lives and in our culture and our society that makes it easier and then also allows us to take those actions. So I was thinking of how we can use this mindset of habits and taking small steps in helping others and helping to make the world a better place. I know it sounds cliche, but I think it's true and each and every one of us can do more than we're doing. We want to make sure we build more habits to, to make that our priority. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.